The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Let's open our Bibles to the, the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. If you've been with us for the past uh, couple months, you know that we have now been working our way through the the book of Ephesians in chapter 1. We've been looking at all these marvelous blessings that have come to us because of Christ, because of what He has done for us, what God has done for us. And we began in verse 3 by looking at what Paul says. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And with that statement, Paul launches into perhaps one of the most profound and glorious descriptions of all the blessings that we have in Christ contained in the Word of God. We've said that this is one run-on sentence from verse 3 to verse 14, 202 words, where Paul just continues to, to pile phrase upon phrase and doctrine upon doctrine to help us truly appreciate the blessings that we have in Christ. As we've said, that that Paul looks at this from the perspective of eternity and the perspective of the Trinity. And so in verses 4 to 6, Paul looks at how God the Father has selected us in eternity past. And then in verses 7 to 12, how God the Son has redeemed us or saved us in the present. And then in verses 13 and 14, as we saw last week, how God the Holy Spirit has sealed us for the future. So Paul transcends time and eternity. He goes from eternity past to the present to the future, looking at God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit to help us truly appreciate what has been done for us in our salvation. These rich, rich truths were planned by the Father, they were accomplished by the Son, and they are now promised and sealed by the Holy Spirit for our future. Some phenomenal truths about our position in Christ here in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul really wants us to understand our position. He wants us to know who we really are. When our kids go out the door for school in the morning, we we usually say, kids, remember who you are. Remember you're a dykstra. Remember you represent our family. Remember you represent our church. Remember who you are. And that's what Paul is doing here in Ephesians chapter 1. He is saying, remember who you are. Know who you are. Know your position in Christ. It's not enough, though, to simply know it. It's not enough for us simply to have this mental ascent as to what God has done in blessing us spiritually. We we need to move beyond that. We need to progress from simply being acquainted with those facts and simply having an intellectual comprehension of those facts to truly grasping and understanding and having a deep appreciation for these blessings. It doesn't do any good to know them if we don't understand them. It doesn't do us any good to be acquainted merely with the facts of what God has done for us. We must be those who truly appreciate, comprehend, and deeply understand the fullness of these riches that have been accomplished for us by God. So, after listing these blessings for us, Paul prays for us. He prays for the Ephesians. He he prays for believers to truly comprehend and to know the fullness of the riches of the blessings that have been accomplished for us. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to the end of the chapter, verse 23, Paul prays. And he prays for you and for me. He prays for the Ephesians and he gauges us in prayer to help us understand and truly comprehend what has taken place for us in these blessings. This is very important for us to understand. We must comprehend the fact that right living proceeds from right thinking. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He is getting at the fact that we must comprehend and know and appreciate and understand these things in order for us to live rightly. Position always precedes precedes practice. Your comprehension of these things must always control your conduct. And so the Christian life is predicated on knowing certain things. You've got to know who you are. You've got to understand your position in Christ. And so we can say that the Christian life is cognitive before it's practical. 
You need to think certain things and know certain things here before you live those things out. So the Christian life is really predicated on, it's really based upon and founded upon what we know. We know this to be true. You are what you think, right? What you think about and what's going around here between these two years really dictates how you live. And so if you're going to live rightly, you need to think rightly. Philippians 4.8 says, think on these things, these things that are right and true and pleasing and honoring to the Lord. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So it starts here. We need to think properly in order for us to live properly. I want you to notice here in verses 15 to 17, all the emphasis on knowing. Look in verse 17. We'll read these verses in just a few minutes. But look what he says in verse 17. He says, I pray that God may give you a spirit of wisdom. That's knowing certain things. And verse 17 also, a spirit of revelation, that's understanding certain things. And verse 17, in the knowledge of Him, or that you may know Him better. The emphasis is on knowing and and being able to discern and comprehend certain things. Look at verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That's His way of saying you need to know. You need to have a a biblical, God-centered comprehension of what God has done in these blessings. You need to know these things. Look at verse 18. He says, that you may know what is the hope of your calling. You see the emphasis on knowing? Wisdom, revelation, knowledge, heart, mind, knowing God. What Paul is doing here is showing us the centrality of truly comprehending and understanding these marvelous truths. And the point here is you can't live by what you don't understand. You cannot be transformed by by what you don't know. And so Paul is going to launch into this prayer for us, for the believers, that we would really understand, really comprehend, really know the great blessings that we truly have. This principle is all throughout the New Testament. If you look at how Paul preaches, how he writes his books, it's always position first and practice second. It's always doctrine and theology first and practice that follows. It's always the indicatives first and the imperatives that come after that. Just read Romans. For 11 chapters, Paul speaks about theology, doctrine, position. And then the last four or five chapters, he launches into practice. Colossians chapters 1 and 2 are theological, they're doctrinal, they're positional. Chapters 3 and 4 are practice. Same thing here. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 are positional, they are doctrinal, they are theological. And chapters 4 through 6 are more practical. In fact, you'll need to know this. There are no instructions in Ephesians 1 to 3. There are 35 instructions in chapters 4 to 6. Why? Because he wants us to know our position He wants us to know certain truths about who we really are. He wants us to think rightly before he instructs us on how to act rightly. We know this. This is very basic. This is is how we live our life. If you take a job, you want to have a job description. And if you're going to enter into a new position, you better have a, a description of that position. You need to know what's expected of you if you're going to do that position rightly. Same is true in athletics. If you're going to play a team sport, you better know your position. You better know what's expected of you in that position in order for you to fulfill it properly. When I was in college, I played on a water polo team. Not intercollegiate, it was just a club team. Uh, Very fun sport, very aggressive sport. There's a lot of knocking and bumping and hitting that goes on. And and, a very fun, aggressive sport to participate in. There's different positions. There's the point position, there's the hole or the center position, there's the wing positions, and I played the flat position or the the, the driver position. And I needed to know what that position was responsible for, and I had to do that position properly. I had to know that position in order to fulfill it properly. You've got to know your position. You've got to know what's expected of you. You need to know who you are in order for you then to live properly. And that's what Paul is praying for here. After describing all these rich blessings, after helping us see this incredible amount of blessings that are, that are ours in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, he now begins to pray that we would understand this, that we would get it, that we would comprehend it before we live it. 
So what he's doing here is he is praying that cognitively we would really understand these truths. And you need to know and understand that there's a danger that comes with living life emotionally. You can't just live life emotionally. God gave us emotions, and emotions are, are good, but emotions are meant to be the caboose on the train, not the engine. That they're meant to be the, the thermometer, not the thermostat, right? Same problems comes when we live the Christian life out of guilt. If you constantly exhort someone, do this, do this, do this, without giving them a proper understanding of the theology or the position behind it, that brings more guilt. We need to know who we are. We need to know our position. We need to know truly what God has done and what he's accomplished in us. And so that true understanding of our position in Christ is the proper motivation then for living it out. When you truly grasp and understand and comprehend who you are, that you've been chosen and adopted and redeemed and given this inheritance and sealed by the Holy Spirit, that becomes the proper motivation for living the Christian life. Not guilt, not just raw discipline, not just emotions. It's positional truth. That's why we don't spend a ton of time here giving you kinds of fluffy, do-good practical, seven ways to a better life kind of sermons. Now, there's a time and a place for those, and I'm, I'm okay with those, and there's a point when you have to do those things. But you have to understand the positional truth before you're exhorted to do the practical truth. You know, over the years, I've been uh, told that my preaching is too doctrinal. It's not, it's not practical enough. And anytime I receive criticism, I, I'm, I take that with, with seriousness. I, I want to grow in my preaching. I want to become a better communicator of God's word. And so I've heard that a few times, and I'm, I'm growing in that. I'm learning how to be a, a better communicator of practical truth and how these truths impact your life. And, and I understand that, and I want you to know I'm continuing to grow and mature in that area of my preaching. At the same time, if all I did was give you seven habits for a being a better person without teaching you the theology and the doctrine and the positional truth behind it, that's not going to help you in the long run, is it? That's just going to kind of give you a little moral boost and a little pep talk, and that's not really going to help you understand the positional truths behind those instructions. The best thing that we can do, the real motive for living the Christian life is understanding who we are in Christ. And so that's why, after listing these immense blessings that we have, Paul prays that we would really understand, that we would really grasp and get what these things are that he has, he has said. So let me read these verses for you. We're going to be just in verses 15 to 19 this morning. I want to read to the end of the chapter, though, so you get the flow of the, the text. Follow along as I read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. This, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith... In the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and even every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is Paul's prayer for you, for the Ephesians, for us to truly comprehend and grasp these immense things that we've just talked about over the last few weeks. I want you to notice that this is really a paradigm for prayer. And maybe you found your prayer life kind of stale and stagnant lately. I want you to notice that, that Paul's prayer here begins with thanksgiving. And we're going to talk about that. And, and then it goes on to ask for key spiritual things. Spiritual insight. Spiritual growth. Spiritual maturity. And you won't find here a list of, Lord, we need this new 
car and we need this new house and we need this new thing. Friends, let this be a pattern for prayer. Let let this kind of inform you as to what God-centered, Christ-exalting, spiritually sensitive prayers look like and let it be a model for you as you pray as well. I want to give you two instructions this morning that flow from this text. First, number one, is to pray with thanksgiving. And secondly, number two, is to pray for understanding. Just two simple truths, two instructions that come out of this text. Let's look at the first one. Number one is to pray with thanksgiving. Paul begins in verses 15 and 16. He says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. So here's the Apostle Paul sitting in a prison cell in Rome under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard, and his heart is bleeding gratitude. It's just filled with thanksgiving. And coming out of Paul's heart is this immense thankfulness for what God has done in the heart of the Ephesians. And he's just filled with thanksgiving. And I love the fact that if you study Paul's prayers, you will find that almost every time he writes a prayer, it includes thanksgiving. It's appropriate that we've just come through thanksgiving as a nation. And here we are studying Paul's prayer, which begins with thanksgiving. Listen to Romans 1.8. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed. This is how Paul prays. 1 Corinthians 1.4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you. Colossians 1.3, we give thanks to God. Every prayer that Paul lists in the New Testament for the most part is filled with thanksgiving and gratitude. So here he is in Ephesians 1, expressing his gratitude and his thanks. He says in verse 16, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. He says, every time I pray, I'm thankful for you. And every time I'm thankful for you, I'm praying for you. It's this ongoing habitual pattern of gratitude and thankfulness that's just bleeding out of his heart as he prays for the Ephesians. I love that because his prayers were not just a list of requests. It wasn't just a list of, God, give me this, give me this, give me this, I need this, give me this, Father. No, his prayers were laced with thanksgiving. They were permeated by an attitude of thankfulness and gratitude that's spilling from the heart of the Apostle Paul. Are you filled with thankfulness? Well, of course I am. We just came through thanksgiving. We're supposed to be thankful, right? But are you filled with gratitude? And does it come out in your prayer? Does it, does it permeate your prayers? As you talk to the Lord, do you come to Him with just a, a list of, God, I need these things? Or do you begin with, Lord, I am so thankful? Colossians 3, verse 15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you, With all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness. Are you singing with thankfulness? Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Christians need to be marked with thankfulness. And here's the Apostle Paul sitting in a jail, and all that comes out is gratitude. As Christians, we ought to be the most thankful people. A thankless Christian is really an oxymoron, isn't it? Like airline food is an oxymoron, right? Or military intelligence is an oxymoron. So too is a thankless Christian. We need to be thankful people. We need to be grateful people. We ought to be those who just spill forth our gratitude and our thanksgiving because we understand the, the richness of the blessings that God has given us in Christ, in the Spirit, in the church. What's Paul thankful for? Look at verse 15. He says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ which exists among you and your love for all the saints. Notice how he begins verse 15. He says, For this reason... 
And so that ties back to everything he said before. In verses 3 to 14, he's been describing these immense blessings from God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, redemption, adoption, election, predestination, inheritance, sealing by the Holy Spirit. We have all of that. And then he says, for this reason, in light of all of that, I thank my God for you. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. He does the same thing. There's two prayers in the book of Ephesians. One here is in chapter 1. The other one here is in chapter 3. It starts in verse 14. And I want you to notice how he begins the same prayer. Or this prayer, he begins it the same way. Chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. You see what he's doing? In chapter 1, he describes these blessings. And then he says, for this reason, I'm praying for you. And then in chapters 2 and 3, he describes more blessings that we've been made alive and, and bought with Christ and been brought together into this one body known as the, the church. And then he says, for this reason, I'm praying for you. Doctrinal truths, positional truths, who you really are in Christ need to be the foundation upon which your gratitude is based. You see that? So after listing all of these immense blessings, Paul begins to launch into this prayer of thankfulness. What was he thankful for? He says in verse 15, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how did he hear about this? He's sitting in a jail. He's chained to a guard. How is he going to hear about this? Well, we know that in that day, travel was very common by sea. People would travel by boat. They would travel over to various places by the sea. And Paul on Doubtedly had people coming to visit him while he was in prison. He received letters. He received mail. He would bring, be brought reports as to how the people are doing. So he's heard. So these people who have come to visit him through the letters that he's received while he's been in jail. He's gotten this correspondence and, and he's heard good things about the Ephesians. What are they? Verse 15. Two things. Your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. What, what great things to be known for. They are known for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love for all the saints. And those two are inseparable truths of a genuine believer. Mark that. Those are the two marks of someone who genuinely knows and loves the Lord Jesus Christ. They are marked by faith and they are marked by love for fellow believers. This is what they are known for. Faith is the vertical relationship. Love is the horizontal relationship. They are known for both. Their faith in Christ drives their love for each other. Vertically, they are rightly related to God. Horizontally, they are rightly related to each other. And in the mark in, in the lives of genuine believers, that's what you have. You have someone who is right with God vertically and someone who is right with others horizontally. They have come to Christ. They've been saved. Their faith is continuing. And it's evidenced in the fact that they know and they love fellow believers. Notice it says in verse 15, they love all the saints. You know, we have the tendency to choose those that we think are best and we leave the rest, right? I'll love that one, but that one over there, man, I'm having a hard time with loving that person. And Paul says here, you Ephesians are known by the fact that you love all the saints. Jesus says, you will know me. You will be known by your love for me. If you have love for one another, right? Love is the mark of genuine, true believers. So here's Paul sitting in prison and hears the faith of the Ephesians is strong. They've come to Christ. He knows that because he was with them for two years and that was four or five years ago. And he hears that their faith is still strong. It's still, it's still continuing and they're still loving Christ and loving the Lord. And he's grateful for that. And he hears about the fact that they're loving each other. I'll tell you, there's, there's nothing you want to hear more of than those two things happening in a church. And if I could piggyback on Paul, I would say, I'm grateful for those same things here. I'm grateful for you, that your faith is strong, that you are walking with the Lord, that you've not only come to Christ, but you're progressing in your faith. 
And I know that, and I see that because I see you loving each other. You get up here after you're visiting with each other and talking to each other, you don't stop. They have to stop you physically because you're, you're loving each other. You're loving the saints and you're, you're welcoming people into this body. You're, you're known to be a friendly church. And I want you to know that. I'll tell you, as a spiritual leader, there is no greater joy than to hear of these things. This is what Paul is understanding about them. He is thankful for them and he prays with thanksgiving for the people that he's ministered to. Just practically, do do you thank the Lord when you hear the faith of others? Do you thank the Lord when you see love being displayed in the life of our church? Do, Do you thank the Lord when you see evidences of grace in your family, in your kids, in your relationships with fellow believers? Do you thank the Lord for those things? You should. Do you pray with thanksgiving? This is what we learn from from Paul's prayer here. We learn that we should be those who are marked by gratitude and marked by thanksgiving as we come to the Lord in prayer. There's a second truth, though. There's a second instruction. It's to pray for understanding. And this is where I want to spend the rest of our time because I believe this is the heart and the soul of Paul's prayer. And we need to comprehend what he's praying for. And so in verse 17, Paul moves from a prayer of thanksgiving to a prayer of petition. And now we get to see the content of Paul's prayer. He said, I'm thankful for you, Ephesians. I'm filled with gratitude and thanksgiving for how you're conducting yourself and and your love and your faith for each other. But I'm praying some specific things for you. And starting in verse 17, we begin to see these things that Paul prays for. So we need to learn to pray for understanding. This is point number two. To pray for understanding. And here Paul begins to pray specifically that we would understand these riches. That we would comprehend, not just know them, but truly comprehend and appreciate our position and what has truly been done for us. He doesn't want us to be ignorant of these riches. And I read an account recently of a man that I think perfectly illustrates what Paul wants us to avoid. Story of a man named Stephen, who several years ago was living in New Jersey and he made this amazing discovery in an old family Bible that he opened for the first time. Many years before that, actually many years, in 1874, his aunt died. And she wrote him into the will. In fact, I'll read you what it said. It says, to my beloved Stephen, this is his aunt, her nephew, He says, to my beloved Stephen, I bequeath my family Bible and all that it contains, along with the residue of my estate after my funeral expenses and just and lawful debts are paid. So she willed to this man named Stephen a a small amount of money and the family Bible. Within a short amount of time, that money was gone. He had used it all up. He didn't think anything about the Bible, put it in storage. Thirty-five years passes. And Stephen had been living in poverty for most of his life. Didn't have a lot of resources. Lived on government assistance most of his life. One day he was cleaning out his attic. He was preparing to move to his son's house. He couldn't take care of himself anymore. And so he was going to go live his remaining years at his son's house. He was cleaning out his attic. And he pulled out this Bible that he had inherited from his aunt. For the first time, he opened it. Guess what he found? Over $5,000 in banknotes. Within his reach this whole time were the riches that he could have been enjoying all along. He could have been enjoying all these blessings and all these riches that came from his aunt. And he didn't know it was in there because he didn't open. He was ignorant of these riches that were his. If only he'd opened this Bible years ago, he might have used that money and enjoyed it all that time. But he didn't know it was there for 35 years. And that's what Paul wants us to avoid. He doesn't want us to fall prey to that. He doesn't want us to succumb to to that kind of attitude or that kind of ignorance. And so he's praying, Lord, help them understand. Help them grasp it. Help them get it. Help them truly comprehend and know the resources that are theirs. And friends, this is how you need to pray. This is how you pray for yourself. This is how you pray for our church. This is how you pray for your friends, your family, your children. God, help them see and know the riches that are theirs more fully. Friends, this is practical. 
And it's practical because oftentimes we will go to the Lord and ask for the very things that we already have. Lord, I I need more strength. And God says, you have everything you need. I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. You have that strength. We go asking the Lord for love and the Bible says that he's poured out his love in our hearts already. It's already there. We ask him to guide us. God's word tells us he already guides us. We ask for grace when his word says his grace is sufficient for us. We ask for peace when God's word says we have everything that we need for peace that passes understanding. So our primary need as Christians is not more resources. Our primary need as believers is not a bigger dose of strength or a bigger dose of peace. That's not what we need. What we need as believers is a greater understanding and recognition of what we already possess. It's not a lack of blessings, but a lack of insight and wisdom to understand and use them properly. I'll confess to you, as I've been studying this over the last few weeks... I can't wrap my mind around all of these blessings that are here. They're so vast and they're so great and they're so deep and they're so wide. I can't grasp all that is here. And and so we need the help of the Holy Spirit to help us truly understand the richness of these blessings. And that's what Paul is praying for here. He is praying that the Ephesians and us actually get this, that we comprehend it, that there's a work of supernatural grace in the heart of these believers and us to comprehend And know these riches. So this is how he prays. This is how we should pray as well. He prays that God would give us an understanding of these resources. So look what he says in verse 17. Follow along. He says in verse 17, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He's praying generally here. He says... Ephesians, I am praying for you to have this greater spirit of wisdom and to have this spirit of revelation and to have this knowledge of him. Why? He wants us to know God more intimately. He wants us to be aware of the riches that are ours so we appropriate them. And so he's praying, God, give them understanding. Give them a spirit of wisdom. Maybe your version has a capital S there in the spirit of wisdom. It could be the Holy Spirit of wisdom. But I think it's also just saying here, God grant them a a disposition of wisdom. Grant them a disposition and an attitude that understands these riches. And certainly that comes by the Holy Spirit. But he is praying for you and for me to have this understanding, to have this comprehension. Give them a spirit of wisdom. Also, look at verse 17. Give them a spirit of wisdom. Revelation. Help them understand all that has been revealed in your word about all that is theirs and who they truly are in Christ. Then in verse 17 at the end, he says, In the knowledge of him, or that they may know you better. Paul's great heart here, his great desire is for you and for me to have a deep comprehension and a deep understanding of these blessings that are ours. He doesn't want just to know them theoretically. He wants us to know them deeply so that we know God intimately. There's a difference between knowing God, about God, and knowing Him truly. I was thinking this week, um, I know Christopher Parkening. If you are into classical music, classical guitar music, You have known and heard the name Christopher Parkin. He is the world's leading classical guitarist, trained by Segovia. He is a a master of the classical guitar. And I kind of know Christopher. Uh, We had him a few times at UCLA when we were ministering on campus. We had the opportunity to have him come and share his testimony and, and play and do a concert for our students on the campus. Phenomenal. Musician. Got to know him as he, as he set up and we interacted over getting ready for these concerts and I know him and his wife a little bit. And yet, you know what? I don't really know Christopher Parkin. I've met him. I've talked to him. I've engaged in him. I, I have, I've had some conversations with him. We've, we've shared some phone calls, but I don't really know Christopher Parkin. That's the difference. 
Paul says you can kind of be aware of God and you can know some things about God and you can have this kind of abstract knowledge of God, but he is praying here that we would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we can truly know God deeply. And that the basis of our relationship and our Christian life is a deep understanding of who we truly are because of him. So this is a prayer for knowing God. This is a prayer for us to truly try and wrap our minds around the blessings that are ours through election, through adoption, through redemption, through inheritance, through the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And that becomes the foundation upon which we are motivated to live the Christian life. I wonder, are you praying for that? Think back on your prayers the last few weeks. As you've been praying, has it been just kind of a list of, God, I need this, and I need that, and I want that? Or do you pray, God, give me a spirit of wisdom. Give me a spirit of revelation. Help me to know you better as I interact with these truths. Look at verse 18. Look at how he emphasizes this in verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That's another way of saying the same thing. He's saying, may the eyes of your heart be enlightened. And the heart here, of course, is the the center of our being. It is the seat of our emotions. It's the seat of our intellect. It is where we think. It's where where we process information. It's where we think about who God is. It's the center of us. It's the very core of us. And how we think inside comes out in how we live. And so Paul is praying here in verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. The eyes of your heart is the gateway into your mind. It's the gateway into your, who, you, who you are, your spirit, your soul. And he is saying, may those eyes of your heart be enlightened. May God cause to shine into your minds a deep understanding and conviction over what it means to be adopted, sealed, predestined, and called. Friends, you need to understand that Christianity is first and foremost cognitive. It's not a motive first and foremost. You don't start with the emotions and certain to start to feel a certain way about God. Christianity is first and foremost cognitive. It starts with informing your minds with a proper understanding of who God is and what he's done in salvation. And when you understand that, then you live out accordingly. Friends, this shows the importance and the priority of the Christian mind. It shows the priority of thinking rightly. It shows the priority of of causing your mind to think deeply upon these truths as the primary motivation for the Christian life. Well, what is it we need to grow an understanding of? What is it we need to think more deeply about? What is it we need to truly comprehend if we are going to be the kind of people who are motivated properly in the Christian life? Well, Paul gives three truths in the rest of these verses that we're going to look at very quickly this morning. I want you to see the three things that Paul prays for, and I want to exhort you to pray for these same things for yourself. First is an understanding of hope. It's an understanding of hope. Look at verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you know what is the hope of his calling. This is the first thing. You say, Todd, you need to get practical with me. You're talking kind of abstract, ethereal here. What is it I should be praying for? Well, Paul tells us here exactly what we should be praying for. We need to pray that we will know the hope of God's calling. What's that? Paul takes us all the way back to eternity past all the way back to election, to predestination, to calling. And he says, you need to go back there and you need to understand that truth to give you hope now today. We've seen already that this is all the way through chapter 1. Look at verse 4. It says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons. Verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. You see what he's doing? He's laying a foundation here of sovereign grace. You've been called, chosen, elected, predestined by God's sovereign choosing. 
And now you need to pray that a deep understanding of those truths permeates your mind so you have hope. Paul wants us to understand that our present hope has its source in the past. You understand that? Your present hope has its source in the past. You don't just kind of work up hope. You don't kind of contrive hope. You don't do something to kind of stir up hope within your heart. No, you go back. You go back to calling. You go back to election. You go back to predestination. And when you do that, you understand and you comprehend that our lives are anchored in eternity. We'll go over to chapter 4, verse 4. Just turn a couple chapters over. Ephesians 4, 4. He says, There's one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. There it is again. It's the same thing. He says, calling produces hope. A deep understanding of the fact that you've been predestined and marked and adopted and called and chosen in eternity past is the source of your present hope. So this morning, are you hopeless? Are you lacking hope? Do you have little joy? Do you have little hope about your current circumstances? Paul says the way to solve that problem is not to generate hope, not to kind of prop yourself up and manufacture some hope to get you through those circumstances. The way you deal with that is you go back and you understand your calling. You've been predestined, elected, called, and marked out for salvation. And the best is yet to come, right? Because of that, the best is yet to come. Reminds me of the woman who, when she learned that she was going to die from cancer, went to her pastor and began to work through all this, all the preparations for their, her funeral. And she talked through the passages and discussed the details and talked about the favorite hymns that she wanted sung here and sung at her funeral. And when it seemed that they covered everything, the woman said to her pastor, one more thing, pastor. He says, I want to be buried in my casket with a Bible in one hand and a fork in the other. The pastor goes, fork? Why, why a fork? This is her explanation. She said, I've been thinking about all the church dinners and banquets that I've attended throughout the years, and I couldn't begin to count them all, but one thing sticks in my mind. At those really nice get-togethers, when the meal was almost finished, a server would come by, and they would take our plates, and then they would whisper something in my ear. They would say, keep your fork. She said, you know what that meant? It meant dessert was coming. And not just a little jello cup, and not just a little pudding cup, real dessert, like cherry pie dessert or chocolate cake dessert. She said that's what it meant. When they said keep your fork, it meant the good stuff was coming. And she said, that's exactly what I want people to talk about at my funeral. So I want you to put a fork in my hand. And when people come up to you and say, Pastor, why is there a fork in your hand? You need to tell them, because the best is yet to come. It's kind of silly, but that's the point. The best is yet to come. For us as believers, this life is not it, is it? The best is yet to come. Do you understand the hope of your calling? Do you understand that hope? Do you pray for that hope? Do you pray for others that you know to have that hope? Do you pray for your kids to have the hope of their calling? When you go to the Lord in prayer, is it, God, I need a new car or a new house or a new wardrobe? Or do you pray, God, help us understand the hope that is ours because of the calling with which we have received? There's a second thing you need to pray for understanding for. You need to pray for an understanding of riches. You need to pray for an understanding of, of riches. Look at verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know the hope of his calling. There's the first thing you need to pray for. Secondly, and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? He says, I want you to pray also that you understand the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What's that? If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 14, we looked at that inheritance. Verse 14 says, who is given, the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance. And so the Holy Spirit is a down payment of the fact that we will receive this riches that God has promised us. Now in verse 
18, he's talking about another set of riches, another inheritance. But it's not the same one as in 14. In 14, it was the inheritance that we receive as a result of knowing God. In chapter 1, verse 18, it's God's inheritance of us. It's the exact opposite. But both are true. We stand to receive this marvelous inheritance as a result of our adoption into God's family. But God also stands to receive a great inheritance as well. What is it? It's us. Look at verse 18. He says, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? This is what God stands to inherit. What is it? It's you. It's the church. In verse 14, it was what we stand to inherit. Verse 18 is now what God stands to inherit. And because of electing grace and saving grace and sealing grace, we have been made God's possession. We're owned by Him. We've been adopted into His family. And because that's true, there's coming a day when God will claim His inheritance. When we become in full realization His possession. Has that ever sunk into your heart? That you're a wretched, rebellious, wicked sinner who's been transformed by grace and adoption and sealed for eternity and one day God will inherit you? That's phenomenal. Where's treasures? He owns the heavens, he owns the universe, he owns every planet, every star in the universe. But you, friends, are God's inheritance. Do you appreciate that? Do you pray to understand that? There's one last thing to understand. You need to understand, thirdly, power. You need to have an understanding of power. Look at verse 19. He prays that we would have an understanding of the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. So we we need to pray that we would understand the hope that God has given us. And we need to pray that we would truly comprehend the fact that we are God's riches. And we also, thirdly, need to pray that we have power and strength available to us to live the life that God has called us to live. And some of you need to hear this this morning. Some of you need to hear this this morning because you're going through life right now and you feel powerless. You feel that you have no resources right now. You feel that you're at the end of your rope. You feel like you're at the end of your resources. You are tired physically. You're tired emotionally. You're tired spiritually. And you don't feel like you have the strength to go on anymore. Health issues. Maybe relationship issues. Just the demands of a difficult life and and hardships of living life and the broken world. Some of you are here this morning and you feel like you don't have any resources left. Listen, you need to hear verse 19. And verse 19 says that you have the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. He says these are in accordance with the working of the strength of of his might. Four different words Paul uses right here, and he pulls every possible word from the Greek lexicon to help us understand that we have resources, we have power, we have strength. Look at he uses the word power in verse 19. What is the surpassing greatness of his power? Dunamis. He uses the word working. These are in accordance with the working. That's the word energeia, energy, energize. Working with the strength, kratos, refers to force and strength and power and the strength of his might. There's the fourth one in verse 19. The strength of his might is kus, which refers to force and strength and ability. Paul pulls every possible word in the Greek dictionary to refer to power and he uses them all right here in this verse to communicate exactly how much power you have. You are powerful, you have resources, you have strength, you have might, and it's all yours. And Paul says, you've got to understand it. And he prays, God, help them understand 
He's talking here about divine, dynamic, eternal energy that is yours now, today. You want to know how much power you have? You want to know how much strength you truly have? Look at verse 20. Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is now available to you. You have it now. You understand that? Do you realize that? Do you, do you see all the resources that are yours now in Christ? And are you praying to understand that? Friends, you've got hope. You've got riches and you've got power. And Paul's praying, open their eyes, help them understand. So I ask you this morning, do you understand your resources? It's one thing to intellectually say, yeah, I've been called, I've been elected, I've been predestined, I've been adopted, I've been inherited, I've been redeemed, I've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's one thing to say, yeah, I know those things. It's another thing to truly comprehend them and let that be the foundation which motivates your Christian life. Do you realize it? Do you understand it? And are you praying for a greater understanding of these rich truths? that are the primary motivation for the Christian life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And in the prayer of the Apostle Paul, we realize, Lord, how much more attentive we need to be to these spiritual things. Lord, some of us are just living life on emotion right now, and that doesn't get us very far. And some of us, Father, are living life on the basis of guilt. We're just trying to guilt ourselves into doing the right thing and spending time in your word. But that doesn't get us very far. Or some of us are trying to just kind of discipline ourselves through raw discipline to to force ourselves to do the right things. That doesn't get us very far. Lord, help us to understand. Help us understand that the real motive for living the Christian life is an understanding of what you've done and how you've graced us. Lord, for those who are here this morning and lacking hope, God, give them hope. Help them go back and study once again their calling. For those who feel like they have no power left, no strength left, no resources left, for those who are here this morning who who feel like they're just at the end of their rope, God, let them see the power that is theirs because of Christ. Lord, we come with an attitude of thankfulness for all the rich, rich blessings that you've given. We pray these things in the name of your Son. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.